Welcome back to Unfeigned Christianity, where we are reconciling human experiences with God and His Word so that we can love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. I'm excited today to have a prof of mine from Eternity Bible College on to talk about eschatology and revelation. Dr. Matthew Halstead is a part-time prof with Eternity Bible College. He also teaches at the Academy. He has a doctorate of philosophical hermeneutics and biblical studies from the London School of Theology in Middlesex University. A couple of years ago in 2020 when a lot of stuff was floating around social media and so forth about the Mark the Beast possibly being connected with the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, Dr. Halstead wrote a couple of articles that, that talked about what the Mark of the Beast is and how do we understand this part of Revelation. And as a result of that, he began writing a book on eschatology. And I've been privileged to be a part of reading the book, uh, pre- previewing the book early on, and, and I cannot wait for it to come out and share it with you all. But I'm excited to have him on here and discuss biblical prophecy, end times prophecy, how to understand eschatology, and specifically Revelation and the Mark of the Beast. I hope you find it helpful and enjoyable as well. Right, welcome, Matthew Halstead, to Unfeigned Christianity. I'm not sure if I have I told you the name of the podcast. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like I did. I did know that maybe. I, I don't. Anyway, I don't remember. It sounds familiar. Yeah. No, I, I've realized that I do that sometimes. I invite people onto the podcast and forget to ever mention what the name of it is. But yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation, and uh, I'm honored to be to be on, on your show. And, um, thanks for asking me to, to hang out with you. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, for the listeners, I was a student of Matthews through Eternity Bible college. Uh, one of the online classes, I think it was the fourth module of foundations. I had switched to online and, and then had you as a prof and started following you on social media and started you seeing you write about revelation and, and resonated with a lot of your stuff. And, now you are in the process of writing a book on Revelation. Yeah, um, it, it's actually it's actually not on Revelation uh, itself. I mean, we have several chapters on Revelation, obviously, but it's actually on eschatology more broadly okay. speaking, like just the end times, which of course takes us to Revelation uh, okay. for a good portion of the book. But um, but yeah, so I've been I've been working on that. Uh, it really, really, it started in 2020, um, but but it's it's finished. The manuscript has been submitted to the publisher, and it's about to enter into the whole development slash editing phase. So okay, yeah, very good. Yeah, tell us a little bit about about yourself. You're a prof for a part time prof yeah. for Eternity Bible College, and you you work at another Bible college as well, right? Well, so yeah, so my full time gig is at um, the Academy of Classical Christian Studies. Uh, I teach um, uh, middle schoolers, teach Bible, um, mostly Bible, a couple of other courses as well. And um, so that's a lot of fun. I enjoy that very much. Um, I've been with Eternity Bible College, though, for about, I guess, around six years. I was thinking through this the other day, and I think it's about six years. And so I I teach a range of courses for Eternity, um, whether 
I teach I teach Torah, Revelation, mm-hmm. New Testament backgrounds, prophets. I've taught in the past apologetics, just all kinds of sort of things, and and and, and foundations, the one you mentioned earlier. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, love eternity. I love working for eternity, and uh, um, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah. What so you with your middle school class, you probably don't get into stuff like Revelation a whole lot, or do you? Yeah, so far this year we we've not gotten into Revelation. That we're saving that for the end, of course. And so yeah. uh, we and, and and that's purposeful for two reasons. One, it's at the end of the Bible. But secondly, yeah. you kind of have to have all the Bible before you even dabble in Revelation. Yeah. And I'm, I'm reminded of something Eugene Peterson once said. He said that you shouldn't even uh, be in in Revelation reading it until you've read all of the Old Testament. And uh, so that's important too, right? Um, but we we have touched on eschatology, of course, because eschatology, you know, it just simply means end times. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of end times texts all throughout the Bible and uh, it's all throughout the New Testament even. So um, you've got uh, all kinds of stuff to, to deal with there. So, yeah, we actually we do. We actually get into it and um, we, we, we even go deep. So, uh, okay. yeah, so it, it's yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, eschatology and revelation kind of in general. My I don't I don't uh mis- intend to blame anybody for this, but growing up, it was not it was not really talked about a whole lot, not not touched on that much. Um so I'm I find myself really interested, obviously. Um and I haven't even asked you like what what you lean as far as pre-millennial, amillennial, post-millennial, or any of that. I can't remember if your book really goes into that but yeah that's part of what interests me in in this conver- conversation is is just kind of gleaning and in my studies with ebc seeing how much of the bible has like the the whole bible has an es- eschatological vision and so yeah I'm, I'm just interested in diving into this a little bit more yeah absolutely and um it's really interesting because we we often forget that in times uh, is such a loaded phrase. And I don't think we're actually taught this a lot in evangelical circles. I don't think we're actually taught this a lot in our churches. Um, there's just, there's just actually a lot of, I don't mean this like in, in a bad way or, or like in a nefarious sinister way, but there's just a lot of misinformation out there about mm-hmm. what the end times even means or is. And so when we talk about the end times, immediately everybody thinks future and immediately everybody thinks revelation, right? Mm. And um, and I like to push back against that a little bit because technically end times can refer to a number of different things. It, it, it can refer to the final events, you know, Jesus's physical return to the earth, final judgment, those sorts of things. Or it can also refer to um the current state that we're in now i mean this is the end time because we are living in the time the era of christ's uh is post you know post-resurrection the the coming of the holy spirit on the church until until the final events technically that's the end times i mean i can show you numerous texts in the new testament where the new testament writers are saying it is the last hour you know or it is the end time right and um, so, so most people, though, when they when they say end times or when they think end times, they think final events, and that could be um, 
that could be kind of dangerous in, in some respects. Uh, dangerous is not the right word. It just that could be misleading in some respects. And uh, because it only tells half the story. Yeah, the final events is part of the end times, but so are a lot of other things in scripture too. And, and anytime you see, you know, uh, you know, those those two things in scripture, sometimes we can conflate the, the text to, to refer to just the, you know, the final events or something like that. And, and it leads to all sorts of errors down the road. And um, so I guess my point is just to say, we need to come back and and, and think about the end times itself. What do we even mean when we say the end times? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in places like Matthew 24, the so-called Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is talking about very important events, he'll use uh, words like the end. And because we associate the end with end times and, there, and with final events, we sometimes take Jesus's statements in the Olivet Discourse to refer to the final events. But actually, I think a strong case can be made that Jesus was referring to future events in his time, but past events in ours. Uh, but that's that's a whole other uh, thing, of course. But yeah, end yeah. times is a very broad phrase and term and concept. And it's important that we understand that before we even proceed any further, I think, as we study eschatology. Yeah, yeah, that's good. It's interesting. Do you identify as like premillennial or amillennial or or do you not really work in those terms or <laughs> that's a great question and it's interesting because anytime we we do talk about end times or eschatology this is often the first question that comes up in in discussions okay what about the millennium and i think it's important for people to remember that the question of the millennium or the millennial reign of christ the so-called 1000 years of the of, of Christ's reign on earth. Um, it's important to realize that 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 is only spoken about in one small section of the entire Bible, right? And there, so there's so much more of the end times than just that. Um, so that just that's just something to, uh, for the, maybe the audience just to kind of muse on and think about. Um, but just to answer your question, you know, I was I was raised learning and hearing and immersed in the so you know the so-called dispensational pre-tribulational, pre-millennial mindset. And, and those are just, you know, $20 words for uh, essentially the left behind view, right? Yeah. If, if people are familiar with left behind theology, the, the novels, the movies, yeah. that's what that is, that, that, you know, the rapture happens and there's seven years of tribulation. Then Jesus returns uh, essentially for what would be technically a third time, <laughs> Um, he returns and sets up a literal 1,000 year reign on the earth. And, uh, and, and I, I don't take that position. I, I'm definitely not pre tribulational. I'm definitely not dispensationalist. Um, there are a number of scholars who are still uh, believers in the whole idea of a literal 1,000 year reign when Jesus returns, even if they don't believe in the rapture, even if they don't go with left behind theology that there will be a rapture, a secret rapture, and then a seven year tribulation. There's still uh, premillennialists who believe that Jesus returns premillennial or before the millennium, mm-hmm. before the 1,000 year reign, and then there'll be a literal 1,000 year reign. Um, that's, I think, I think that's a, a position that uh, you know I can respect. I think there are numerous well-respected scholars who believe that, um, godly people who believe that. My position, however, is is closer to the all millennial view, which is essentially that we are living in the millennium 
in a sense, right? Mm. Uh, that that Jesus's kingdom has already come. It's not been consummated yet. It won't be consummated until he returns. But we are nonetheless living in an era where we can rightly say Jesus Christ is Lord. He is ruling and reigning. And we are in the process right now of praying, yes, your kingdom come on earth as it uh, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, but at the same time, while we acknowledge the kingdom is still yet to come, we still acknowledge that it already has come which is why we give gospel invitations for people to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is king today, right? Because the mm. kingdom is mm. right here, right? Um, not It's already, but not yet. That's the sort of thing. So that's kind of the space I live in. Uh, I could be wrong on that. It To me, the, the millennial question is not, you know, it's not, I hate to say, it, it's a very important question because it's in the Bible, but it's not one that concerns me that much just because the Bible doesn't devote much space to the question, even though, interestingly, it's been given much attention by a lot of scholars and, and popularizers, uh, and prophecy teachers and stuff. Um, but, yeah, so that's just uh, that, that's sort of my view uh, on that. I, I, and I'm a biblical scholar. I, I And what that means is notoriously us biblical scholars don't like to be put in boxes right <laughs> and we like to not be labeled i mean there are schools of thought you know of course but there's a strong um sense in which biblical scholars are resistant toward mm-hmm. labels mm-hmm. uh you know that's not true for all of us but but for me it's true i i yeah. just don't like labels i mean as soon as you label me is you know it's it's like then there's a lot of assumptions that might go along with that. And then I get other views attached to me. So I just like to, you know, uh, avoid those as much as I can. But at the same time, I acknowledge that, you know, sometimes we have boxes (laughs) that we like to operate in. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I I love that answer. That that's very much kind of what I find myself, although I'm not, I would not call myself an, an, an eschatological scholar or anything, but I grew up, my dad, um, who was a pastor and, and Bible teacher growing up, um, he would have circled more in the amillennial camp than, mm-hmm. but, but I had many influencers in my life who were premillennial. And so it's kind of interesting. Maybe, maybe it's because of the amillennial flavor that I kind of connected with some of what you were saying. Sure. But the reason I asked the question was I was curious what, if there's something in history that has made us think when we think eschatology or end times, we think future. Do you think premillennialism favors that kind of notion or is that, is that, is it not fair to blame one particular view to that? Yeah, I, I, they may be different issues. I mean, because, um, again, the millennial question just sort of, a side note for me, an important one, one we deal with, I want to deal with and think about, but it's, it's not the most pressing thing. I, I don't, I don't think, I, w- I think though, what is more pressing for us to, uh, as scholars to talk about, as pastors to, to talk about is, is the question of futurism, right. Uh, that you kind of brought up and I wouldn't blame, uh, you know, premillennialists for adv- advocating, um, you know, a staunch uh, futuristic, you know, uh, outlook on these sorts of things necessarily. I mean, it is a lot, a lot of, pre- a lot of people advocating uh, futurism are pre- premillennialists, of course. And so maybe that's where the, 
the association comes in. So I definitely acknowledge that. But I think I think I think what causes people to get so caught up in futurism is not so much whether they're premillennial or whatever. I think it's because of the way they understand prophecy and how prophecy works. Um, and, uh, and, and the way they understand revelation that has, that has, uh, an, it, part of, a, of the issue, I suppose. Um, so for example, most people think prophecy is about prediction fulfillment. Like there's a prediction in the past that will be fulfilled in, well, the future, right? So that's this idea of futurism. Um, and I don't actually think that's a good definition of old Testament prophecy. I mean, it sounds like Nostradamus's prophecies, right? Uh, um, I know one scholar, uh, basically, I forgot how he put it, but he, he, he essentially right and rightly, you know, said, you know, a lot of Christians think like Nostradamus in terms of biblical prophecy, and that's the wrong way to do it. Um, Jewish prophecy, Old Testament biblical prophecy is not so much about prediction and fulfilling anything. It's more about, um, I mean, it, it does include prediction and fulfillment. Like you can, I can show you texts where there are prophecies that are about the future. Okay. But that doesn't capture the sum total of biblical prophecy. I think another way of looking at biblical prophecy is what um, some have described as act and reenactment. I mean, these are sorts of things that some scholars talk about. It's something I talk about a lot. Um, and uh, when we, when we think of act and reenactment, what do I mean by that? Well, um, sometimes a, a prophecy in the Old Testament um, might have to do with a localized historical situation, okay, that can later be reenacted in the future, okay, and uh, in, in, and in that sense, the future reenactment of that is considered a fulfilled prophecy. So let me just give you an example of this, if you don't mind. Yeah. In, in, the, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, and I won't read all this or anything. I'll just sort of point out the, the the issue going on in Daniel 9. And maybe readers can go back later and check it out. But in Daniel 9, there is um, a discussion about uh, a, 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 an event that happens in the temple that is called an abomination of desolation. And historically, most scholars are going to say that that, historic, that that refers to a historical event when uh, the, uh, the, um, the Greek Syrian uh, uh, king, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, goes into uh, the temple or has his people go into the temple and he desecrates the temple. They're, they sacrifice pigs on the altar and all this sort of stuff. So it's an abomination of desolation. And that's what it's described as. Okay, So that, that's Daniel's word, oracle, prophecy, whatever you want to call it. That refers to that event that happened um, uh, you know, a long time before Jesus came on the scene. But when Jesus does come on the scene and he's standing on the Mount of Olives uh, um, in, in, in Matthew 24, he talks about the destruction of the temple at the hands of the Romans, okay? And he calls, he, he says, look, this is Daniel's abomination of desolation, okay? And He's, he quotes Daniel there, and he references Daniel, the prophet, he says. And so, well, what does this have to do with how to understand prophecy? Well, it has a lot to do with how to understand prophecy, because originally, the original context of Daniel's 
uh, prophecy was about Antiochus, this 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 other king who was trying, this Greek king who was trying to, um, uh, well, who who was trying he was trying to Hellenize the Jews, that is to make them more Greek, and um, and it kind of reached a pinnacle by him having pig sacrificed on the altar. Okay. And that, that's the historical context. It's really hard to get away from that. Again, most scholars think that's what Daniel's talking about. And yet Jesus takes that and repurposes it, repackages it, repackages it for his own time to speak not about a Greek empire, but about a Roman empire who will come and destroy the, the temple in AD 70. So the initial prophecy was initially in, enacted uh, by Antiochus, the Greek ruler, but then it's reenacted by the Romans in AD 70, which is what Jesus predicted in Matthew 24. So this, you see this act reenactment that it's not, it's not so much prediction fulfillment because I don't, you know, it's a hard case to say that Daniel was predicting and knowingly predicting the Roman destruction of the temple that would happen, you know, quite a way, quite a while later, but Jesus can repurpose that uh, for the, for the, the sake of talking about his own era. So you see this happening uh, sometimes in scripture. I'm thinking one last example that might be helpful is in Matthew chapter two. Um, there's this whole scene, of course, where uh, Herod is trying to, you know, kill the babies, right? And in the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they, they book it to Egypt and they stay there till Herod dies. And then they come back right to uh to their home and then matthew says quote this is to fulfill what the prophet you know hosea said uh out of egypt i will call i call my son out of egypt i call my son that's uh from hosea chapter 11 verse 1 when you go back and look up that hosea passage hosea 11 1 yeah it's, it's i think it's hosea 11 1 when you go back and look it up you see that the context is is not talking about baby Jesus, okay? The context is 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 a reference to Israel's exodus from Egypt. So Hosea is being used by God to recall a past event, past for Hosea's time, a past event about Israel's leaving Egypt at the exodus with Moses. And that's where he says, yep, out of Egypt I called my son. That's all the references to but then Jesus repurposes, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew repurposes it to refer to Jesus. Okay, that Jesus is the new Israel. He's the Israel who's coming out of Egypt. And um, so what has he done here? It, it was Hosea, Hosea predicting this happening to Jesus? And, and then Jesus, as a baby, leaves Egypt, and that's a fulfillment? Well, because Matthew calls it a fulfillment of the prophecy. Um, well, yes, it's definitely a fulfillment of the prophecy. But not in the sense that it was necessarily a prediction in the way we think or in a Nostradamus sort of way. It's a fulfillment in the sense that Jesus is reenacting the story of Israel because it is Israel that brings rescue to the world. And in Jesus as the new Israel is bringing rescue to the world. So Matthew has Jesus reenacting the story of Israel all through uh, this section. I mean, you have Jesus being baptized in in the Jordan, Israel crosses through the Jordan to go to the uh, the, the promised land mm-hmm. uh, to start their conquering of it. Uh, you have Jesus um, going into wilderness to be tempted 40 days. Well, I- Israel was in a wilderness for 40 years being tempted by much of the same things Jesus was being tempted of. Uh, Jesus climbs a mountain and starts teaching 
Well, Moses climbed a mountain and taught, you know, got his instruction from God and so forth. So you have Jesus being the new Israel and he's reenacting its story. And so there's some logic behind uh, this, this uh, prophecy. But my point here is, look, uh, prophecy is like that mainly. It, there is a predictive element, but only in the sense or mostly in the sense of it being an act and then a reenactment. So, so what does this have to do with eschatology? It might have a lot to do with it, actually, because, um, you know, can some of these, you know, when you, when you look at some of these prophecies in, in, in the New Testament about the end times or what we think is about the end times, some people say, Ah, this is about the final events. So you go to Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, and Jesus talks about the the abomination of desolation. Of course, in context, he's referring to when when, uh, Rome destroys the temple uh, in AD 70, right? That's future for him because he's, you know, this is uh, a few decades beforehand, before that, several decades before that. And um, so some people say, well, this is when the Antichrist uh, Jesus is talking about the Antichrist who will walk into a, a third rebuilt temple, sacrifice a pig on it or something, and then desecrate it. He's talking about the future. And I would say, well, it's possible that's going to be reenacted in the future. But, um, but you know, we need to be careful because Jesus, you know, Jesus is actually talking about, you know, his own era at that time. Is it possible it's going to be reenacted in the future? Yeah, it's possible. And when we look at some things that Paul says about the man of lawlessness, it, it seems like something like that's going to happen. But you it's so it's you can't speculate and predict what's going to happen because you won't know it's been reenacted until it's been reenacted. Um, other, other, you're just speculating at this point. Right. Yeah. So G, so Paul has this man of law, lawlessness who takes his place in the temple, he says, and then he um declares himself to be god uh in this temple that's what paul says about the man of lawlessness or the antichrist we might say well you know some say well that's when the antichrist walks into the temple and desecrates it right well i guess it depends on what we mean temple there because paul when he talks about the temple he usually means the church not like a physical structure right um so that's important there too but you know is 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 paul anticipating a reenactment of the desecration of the original temple you know that's that might be one way to think of it but you know we can't know the details i don't think you know it's just so hard to know much of those details anyway back to your original point uh prophecy we i think we have to see it as act and reenactment not so much prediction fulfillment yeah no that's that's really helpful i'm grateful for you sharing all that i and i was even wondering then how how does that translate into future prophecy um and i really like uh, yeah. both both in your book and as you're talking here how you you are just careful to like stick within what what we know or what we can know as opposed to try to make everything make sense for us right now because so, sometimes uh people talking about prophecy are a little more like black and white this is how it's going to work out <laughs> Right. And it's, it's like, well, I, I'm not sure I necessarily saw that reading myself. And, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm with you. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of certainty when, when it comes to modern prophecy teachers. And yeah. I think we need to be careful about that. Yeah. So what, I mean, you've kind of shared about this already, but what led you yeah. to, to write a book on eschatology? Like what kind of, 
Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I probably didn't anticipate writing a book on eschatology. The way it worked out was in 2020, when the pandemic hit, um, there were lots of things being shared and, and, and talked about on social media about COVID-19, the vaccine associated with that, and all of this kind of stuff. And um, and what was interesting was how people were speculating about the future, about how this all ties into the end times, and they were associating certain scripture with it, Bible verses and so forth. And it was really frustrating because it they didn't they they didn't really go into at all the context of those scriptures. They were just making statements and pairing scripture with their speculations. And some of it just got very weird uh, and very conspiratorial without any any uh, base basis of fact. You know, there was no research done into any of this. It was just lots of sharing of weird things that you know, upon some, uh, upon looking into, you find this just baseless. And you know, I'm, I'm I don't know everything about the Bible, <laughs> but there are lots of things that I could easily detect in, in their use of these scriptures that that I just knew instantly that they were not in context and they were being taken out of context. And so, what happened was, I wrote a little piece uh, about the mark of the beast and COVID nineteen and all that. I wrote two pieces that were um, published on the Logos Academic Blogs website. And they're still up today. People can go find them. And essentially, a lot of people ended up reading those articles. And uh, um, so long story short, the, the, a friend of mine who was the, as the managing editor of that, that website, you know, asked if I'd be interested in writing a book on this topic because he also worked for uh, the publisher uh, that was associated with Logos, uh, Lexum Press. And, um, and uh, so, yeah, the, he was sort of my avenue. He, he really, I'm really thankful for him because he, he really um, uh, put the idea in my head to do this. And so I did it, long story short, that's how the book came about. It's just a more expanded version of, yeah. of those issues, but about eschatology more broadly speaking. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, re- I remember seeing those articles when you published them. That, that was kind of, it, I, I was also seeing on my Facebook feed and just other friends and stuff, just some conspiratorial type way of looking at COVID-19, the vaccine and all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, like, I think, I, I, I don't know what all, as far as my listeners, like who all what way how they understand things if they fall in that camp that was spreading stuff like that around or not but one one of the things i want to just point out is that this is not i don't hear you um and it's definitely not my intention to, to somehow like make a moral judgment about the vaccine per se in this right right this this is more trying to get like be robustly thorough in our biblical understand uh study of of what revelation is talking about or eschatology in general yeah that's true yeah i'm not um you know i'm not a a medical doctor right so i i'm not you know i just tell people you know listen to the scientific community you know talk to your doctor you know what are the doctors saying and you know it, it was amazing to me how how a lot of non medical professionals were weighing in on that, that topic anyway but I, yeah. that was not I wasn't I'm not a medical professional I wasn't weighing in on that topic yeah what 
you know, the, from the biological perspective, I, you know, I just, I, I have to rely on the experts for those sorts of things. And that, yeah. that's, that's what I do. I think they know more about that than I do, of course. So um, what's interesting is, is like I said, a lot of people were making statements about those things that I don't think really needed to be making statements about it. Uh, now I'm not, I'm not saying they couldn't have their own personal view, of course, but they were making statements like, broad statements about what everybody should do, you know, and that sort of thing. But even that wasn't my problem. My problem was from a biblical scholar's perspective is how, of how they were tying that into scripture, right? Mm-hmm. How it was being coupled with scripture in a way that was taking scripture out of context and was taking uh, lots of unsubstantiated liberty with scripture to advance some of their causes, right? And I didn't like that. And and um, so that that's why I, I offered... The, the a different perspective and and to be honest with you i'm not saying really anything new like i'm not coming up with uh anything novel here my my passion has always been to take what scholars have been saying and are saying and help help that information to get down to people in the church because there is a gap often between the, the scholarly world and the church and so i like to bridge that gap as best i can and uh and so whenever I saw that, you know, the COVID-19 vaccine was the mark of the beast or whatever, <laughs> I, I, I may, may say, like, I know of no reputable biblical scholar who has ever said that, right? And, and, and biblical scholars disagree amongst themselves all the time about other issues, but they're actually pretty united on that with that question, right? And, and yet it, these, these things were being passed on as if they were just certain truth, you know, and and from a biblical perspective, even, and I thought, man, this is not good. So actually, my wife is the one who said, you need to say something about this, you know, and, mm. and so finally, I did. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, well, let's, let's dive into that, sure. if you if you don't mind. Um, no, go ahead. Obviously, like, I, I'd love to talk about the Mark of the Beast, but mm-hmm. maybe we're, maybe we're jumping too far ahead. Let's just look at Revelation as a whole, like how yeah. you talked about people not not understanding the context. Um, I think um, uh, somewhere in your book, you, you mentioned uh, understanding before we try to figure out the content of revelation, we need to understand the context of revelation. Yeah. What is the context? What, what is the point even of revelation? Mm-hmm. What is, I'll just let you talk about it. So. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a great starting point really, because yeah, you can't understand the content of Revelation until you understand the context of Revelation. What is the context? Well, it kind of depends on what we mean by context, because that's a loaded word. I mean, there, there are essentially two uh, contexts that we need to reckon with. The first context of Revelation is its literary context. Mm. The second is its historical context. So let me talk about the literary context. When I when we say literary context, we mean what type of writing is Revelation? What's what kind of text is it? What 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 is its genre? Right, kind of like we have genres today: fiction, nonfiction, historical nonfiction, science fiction, fantasy. You know all those sorts of genres. And um, you know if you if you mess up the genre or or if you don't understand the genre of a book you're reading, you're going to sometimes misinterpret it. I mean, could you imagine someone? reading a, a fantasy science fiction book thinking that it was um you know uh historical nonfiction, like it, you know whatever you know they're gonna be really confused Is, did this really happen <laughs> no you have to understand the genre of it right so in this in the same vein if we misunderstand the genre of revelation 
you will misunderstand revelation. So, okay, so what is revelation? What is its genre or its literary context? Well, most of the time, most scholars point to three different types of genres that revelation is. It's sort of a a multi-genre type of text. So it is, first of all, a letter. Okay, so it's a, a letter to seven real churches of Asia Minor, which is like modern day Turkey, the Western side of that. Okay. And these cities are real cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, um, Laodicea, you know, these are churches you can find on a map. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, uh, and, and John, who is exiled on the Island of Patmos, he's writing to these seven churches. And so when, as soon as you say it's a letter, uh, you have to acknowledge that it, it had to have been discernible. This is something Craig Keener talks a lot about in his mm. commentary or in his lectures. He's, he says, look, if it's a letter written to real people by a real person, it had to have made sense to those people, right? Um, it had to have been discernible. And, and especially so given that revelation at the very beginning says things like, you know, blessed are those who keep the contents of this book, you know, who obey it. Well, how do you obey something if you don't understand it, right? Yeah. Uh, that's something Keener says a lot uh, about, and it's very insightful. Um, so, yeah, as soon as it, you identify it as a letter is the minute you have to do investigative research into motives behind writing the letter. Why did John write it? Why did the, the churches need to hear it? What was going on in Asia Minor at the time? So forth and so on. So it's also, uh, just quickly, it's a prophecy and it's apocalyptic. So a prophecy, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's all future. It, it might mean that but it might mean bits and pieces are not future, right? Again, prophecy, as I said earlier, is not necessarily about prediction fulfillment, okay? Mm -hmm. It's not always about the future. In fact, even though Revelation is a prophecy, a lot of it might be about our past, and that's very important to remember. Mm -hmm. um, the third thing is that Revelation describes itself as an apocalypse, okay? That's why we call it Revelation, is because the book starts off by saying an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Well, apocalypse... You know, we think mushroom clouds and famine and four horsemen, you know, whatever. Um, but actually, the word apocalypse doesn't mean any of, any of that. It, it means nothing of the sort. All apocalypse means is the unveiling or to to look behind the curtain to reveal something. Hmm. And we would call that a revelation. Okay, But it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It, it's meant to tell us the truth about who really reigns, right? Mm. Uh, who's really in charge and so forth. So that's its literary context. It's a letter, it's a prophecy, and it's an apocalypse. It's the great reveal, right? Mm -hmm. But the historical context is another matter too. Uh, if you if you identify it as a letter, then you have to you have to, as I said a, a moment ago, you have to jump into the, investigating the historical context. To put the matter simply, the historical context of Revelation is um, the first century uh, Roman Empire, Asia Minor. Okay, that's the cultural, that's the context, historical place. Well, we know that the that 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 time period in that location, especially Asia Minor, it was riddled with imperial worship or the worship of Caesar. Um, Caesar worship was a very important what we might call religion of the day. Okay, I don't like that word religion in, in many ways because I don't think it actually describes accurately hmm. what was going on. It's more of like a way of life. Okay, hmm. 
religion is what we do on Sundays, right? Uh, back then, they were much more religious in the sense they were much more devoted uh, in every area of their life to their to their to their deities and so forth. Well, one deity they worshipped, or it would have been the emperor and, and their families. The emperors were deified uh, during this time, and uh, so they were worshipped, and they had uh, temples dedicated to the worship of Caesar. And this is very important. And this is something a lot of modern Christians don't know about is that there were temple systems that had priests uh, associated with the worship of Caesar. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and this happened a lot in Asia Minor. And so that's the context of all this. And I think if you don't know any of that imperial cult stuff, the worship of Caesar stuff, then you will not understand Revelation. You, you can only understand the contents of Revelation if you understand the, that context of Revelation. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. What what would you say the point of Revelation is? Like, what is what is John trying to do through this letter, this apocalyptic letter? Yeah, that's a good question. I think he's trying to uh, comfort and challenge the church in their pursuit of following Jesus and to keep them from compromising as they do follow Jesus. So it's a, Mm. it's a letter of comfort. So, you know, there are several figures and characters throughout revelation that are sort of, you know, uh, center stage characters, I guess you could say. Um, They're the ones on stage a lot, namely the dragon, which is Satan. And then he has two beasts that he raises up from the sea and from the earth. And, uh, Basically, these beasts are waging war against the church. They are, you know, killing and destroying and doing all the things that the dragon wants them to do. Um, so, but but they're they're important, you know, they're important characters. They're on stage a lot. But the most important player, the prime character, the star of the show, is not the beast or the dragon. It's it's the lamb who was slain. So John has this lamb figure who had been slain. Um, and the idea is that the, the slain lamb conquers the monstrous beast. So we need to think of it like that. We need to think of it as almost like this um, story that, that John's telling in, in highly symbolic uh, language. Yeah. So he, he's trying to comfort and challenge. He's comforting them and say, look, you follow the lamb, but just remember the lamb wins. And for those of you who are compromising in, in with the beast, you need to quit. You need to repent and follow the lamb. Yeah. Yeah, and so the the Christians of that time would have been living in an era of imperial worship, and and not only that, but if they didn't worship the emperor, they were being persecuted. And correct, right? Like that, that was yeah. So that was the pressure of compromising and, and so forth. That and John yeah. is comforting them in that. Absolutely, he's yeah. comforting them. He's saying, "Look, the beast will come to an end." Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean that—that's that. It's such a more beautiful, life-giving read already, just with that <laughs> right perspective, as opposed to trying to figure out what is this saying about the future. If I'm mm. reading, like, yeah. Anyways, this is—I tell people, look, if you read Revelation and you walk away more afraid, you're reading it wrongly. Either a, you've misunderstood the message you're a sincere christian and you've misunderstood the message or you are a beastly person who has understood it rightly but either way either yeah. way you're you you're not reading it from the eyes of faith 
and sincerity, right? So Mm. it should elicit hope and joy and peace and comfort. It should challenge us, but you know, that's a good thing. So, yeah. 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 So what, what is the beast? You talk about the two beasts that, that John has come forth and what is the beast and what's its mark and kind of with that, like, why, why is that such a big piece um, in in your book? I don't know how many spoilers you want me to give or not, but um that's fine yeah go ahead there's actually another mark that's maybe more important um but yeah like why why has the mark of the beast captured so much attention what is the beast what is the mark why has the why has the mark captured so much attention? that's a great question i i i don't know ultimately why but it, it is curious how so many evangelical christians especially have made the beast the center player you know the main star of the show uh and his mark is somehow the most important thing that revelation even speaks about you know, like that's not even the case at all I, I don't know why that is i suspect it has a lot to do with our tendency to to um gossip about alarmism we have this weird relationship with alarmism and and, and these these uh, fears about the future, right? We just were prone to those sorts of things for some reason. And so when we hear something, it's very contagious. We share it. And when you, once you share it, it becomes more and more abundant uh, in our culture. And with a lot of modern prophecy teaching and popular books, it becomes even more widespread in that respect, right? And which is so sad in many ways, because just as you mentioned, Revelation talks about another mark that most Christians either A, haven't even heard about, or B, have heard about it, but have failed to even consider it. Um, and, and that's the mark uh, of the righteous. So you in Revelation 13, verses 16 and 18, you have, or 16 through 18, you have um, the mark of the beast that's put on your hand, forehead, or whatever, right? Um, but then... Right after that, the next verse starts a new section in Revelation 14 that talks about the mark, uh, what Craig Keener calls the mark of the lamb. And I think that's a great way to understand it. It uh, he, Revelation also talks about it before all of this in Revelation 7, but Revelation 14 is a good point of, of considering this. Um, the, mark, the, the mark of the lamb uh, likewise, um, you know, is placed on, on the believer's and uh, in both the mark of the beast and the, and the mark of the lamb are associated with names. So um, uh, I'll just, I'll, if you, do you mind if I read the section? Uh, yeah, go for it. Okay, cool. Um, it's from Revelation 13. It says, um, let's see. Yeah, 13 verse 17. It says, no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark of the beast. That That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So this is interesting. John tells us what the mark is. I mean, he straight up tells us, he said, it is the name of the beast. It's also the number of his name. We could talk about that a little bit if you want to. And the number of his name is 666. But then you go down to Revelation 14. It says, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So there's immediate parallels here where the the beast mark goes on. Um, uh, the the right hand or the forehead of the unrighteous, and the lamb's mark goes on um, uh, on the foreheads of, of the saints, right? 
And so, and, and both are associated with the name, the name of the beast or the name of the lamb and the father, God, right? Mm-hmm. And so th- these are meant to stand in parallel and to contrast with one another. So the idea is that if you can understand one of them, you can under- probably understand the other one, right? Sorry, that's my little clock. Oh, no <laughs> Sorry. Uh, um, so, so you have that and uh, it's so annoying. Now I'm distracted. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm not going to go up and turn it off. Um, but you have these two things, and um, and if you can if you can understand one, you can definitely understand the second one. So how do we understand the mark of the lamb? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, Paul talks about us being sealed with uh, the Holy Spirit, right? Um, and and I think that really captures what's going on here in Revelation 14 with the mark of the lamb. This is a this is a spiritual seal or spiritual marker on the saints it, it's it these marks don't make you righteous or unrighteous they identify you as being righteous or unrighteous mm-hmm. that's huge right there right so yeah. these sincere christians who are worried about getting the mark of the beast by accident say ha- shouldn't worry about that because as christians they're already marked with the lamb or sealed with the holy spirit the other thing that's interesting here is that there's a jewish text called the psalms of solomon which was written several decades before Jesus was born. And it's a, it's a Jewish text. Uh, it's, you know, it's not in your Bible or anything, but it's, it's, it's a very important text. And in that text, um, uh, you have mentioned a sign of God is upon the righteous ones. It's what, the, what it says. That's uh, chapter 15, verse eight. And then you have a sign of destruction upon the unrighteous. And it's, that's on their foreheads, it says, right? And so these, John didn't come up with this idea of the mark of the beast or the mark of the righteous. He didn't come up with this. This was in early Jewish writing already. In fact, it's even written in in a place like Ezekiel chapter nine, where uh, God sends an angel and the angel puts a mark on the saints uh, to protect them from destruction because God was about to uh, bring about his judgment. And this was a mark of protection. And so again, Ezekiel's talking about a mark. And Craig Keener points to these texts and says, we got to really think about this because, you know, these marks, you know, are technically invisible. They're only visible to God and to his angels, is what Keener says in his Revelation commentary. Mm-hmm. And so let's come back to Revelation. We, we probably need to understand the mark of the Lamb like that. You know, it's the seal of the Holy Spirit, however you want to talk about it, which is clearly an invisible thing. And uh, that's probably true of the mark of the beast as well, to some extent, right? Um, these, these marks do not make you unrighteous. They identify you as unrighteous. They, and, and the mark on the righteous is meant to protect them from destruction. The mark on the unrighteous is meant to mark them out for destruction. I think that's the idea. So it's an identity marker, and it's a marker of protection or destruction, depending on the mark that you have. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's like, so what, how did we get here? Well, we're looking at background data. We're looking at the context of revelation. I haven't mentioned the other context of revelation, namely the Jewish context, because John is a Jew and he draws from his Jewish worldview and the Jewish story, which if that's the case, if he's going to talk about marks on the righteous and the unrighteous, every good Jew who shared his Jewish context would immediately think of Psalms of Solomon or Ezekiel nine, these marks that go on them, right. Uh, that they talk about. And so, but see, we're Americans. We don't share that Jewish assumption. And so we don't have these background stories of Ezekiel that pop up in our mind, but that's because we don't know the context that well. 
Um, but if you know the context, it will help you. Um, so I think that helps us to understand what's going on. I think a good case can be made that the mark of the beast is not a physical mark per se, not in the way at least we think. Okay, now there's, it can have physical manifestations in the world. And then I think maybe John might be talking about that too, in a sense. So let me just go through this real quickly. Um, a lot of scholars point out how um, on Roman coins, imp imperial coins, there there were um, you know images of the of the Caesar on those coins. Okay, but what was interesting about that is on these same coins, the images of the Caesars were depicted in um, deified terms. Okay, so they were depicted as gods on the coins. So if you were um, holding around these coins, these Roman coins to buy and trade with, right? You couldn't buy and trade or sell anything. You couldn't handle a coin without literally carrying the mark of the emperor on it, right? And in fact, devout Jews, some commentators point out how devout Jews wouldn't even carry such coins because they were images of blasphemy, okay? That's very interesting, I think, in, turn, in, in, in light of what we're talking about. And so um, another thing, too, is how um, oftentimes the, the, you know, these, these cities in Asia Minor, particularly a place like Thyatira, there, there were lots of trade guilds so that if you wanted to be a businessman, businesswoman, you needed to join a trade union or a trade guild. And these trade guilds would often include feasts that uh, were that you had to participate in, where you had to eat the same food that were dedicated to the Caesars or to the to various other pagan deities, right? So you 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 would have trouble having a business buying and selling if you didn't participate in some of these feasts to the Caesars. In fact, there's been historical evidence that shows that uh, there's crossover between the trade guilds and the imperial cult. So in, in at least one instance that I've heard about, um, some, some research has shown that there was a president or a leader of a trade guild that was also a, a priest in the imperial cult. So you had, it had these like crossovers. So, I mean, it would really be hard to, for a Christian to be part of a trade guild and, and not be expected to worship Caesar, right? Mm. And now I think something like that is what he's talking about, about the mark of the beast. And it has to do with the money of Rome, Okay because that money was literally marked with images of Caesar that were blasphemous in, in depicting him as a deity. Now, all of this kind of assumes, right, that the beast is the emperor or the Roman empire more generally, right? And, and there's actually a lot of evidence for that as well. I'll mention that briefly, and if you have follow-up questions, we can chase some rabbit trails if you want to. But um, so a lot of scholars, again, highlight um, how the mark of the beast passage, you know, it, it, it tells us what the mark is. I'll, I'll just look at it again. Revelation 13. Um, it says no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So the mark is the name of the beast or the number of its name, which is 666. Well, a lot of scholars point out how the number 666 is a pretty good solid match for the emperor Nero. Okay. Um, so, for example, if you take um, Nero's name in Greek, okay, Neron Kaisar, and you transliterate each of those letters into Hebrew, 
then it comes out to 666, okay? What's even more fascinating, though, is that there's another way to spell Nero's name. Instead of saying Neron Kaiser, you can drop one of the ends and you can say Nero Kaiser. That number comes out to 616. What's why I bring that up is because in some manuscripts of Revelation, the number is not 666, it's 616. And a lot of scholars point out how the, the scribes translating that, um, it's, it's, it's like they, they knew that he was talking about Nero, you know, anyway, so yeah. it's just, it's a fascinating phenomenon in the text. And, and so why would Paul, I mean, I'm sorry, why would John be talking about Nero? Well, again, some scholars are going to say Nero embodied the, the essence of evil pagan Rome. Because Nero was notoriously an evil, evil emperor who was just absolutely crazy, a uh, murderous villain. And he embodied all that Rome really was, okay? And John was probably writing Revelation, you know, a couple decades or a little more than a couple decades after Nero died. He was probably writing around AD 95, and that was when Domitian, another emperor, was on the throne. And Domitian was just as despicable and crazy, okay? But what's interesting, though, is that, you know, in some texts, uh, Domitian is kind of considered a second Nero. You know, so, so even though 666 can mean Nero, it could also be kind of a wink at Domitian as well. Um, so we, and we also, by the way, we have uh, extra biblical texts that speak of, Nero as a beast. So, I mean, we have other texts that describe him as such yeah. outside. So that's kind of another clue. And one last clue is in Revelation 17, uh, John talks about the beast there and he describes the beast. Uh, I'll pull up the reference and it's in Revelation chapter 17. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, let's see. Yeah. 17 verse three. I won't, I'll just kind of read it just a bit here. It says that this that there was this beast, uh, it was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Um, and then uh, later on, uh, you know, the the um, uh, John John gives a, an interpretation of what those seven heads mean. So it's a seven-headed beast, and he tells us what those seven heads represent. Um, he interprets it for us. So in Revelation 17, verse 9, he says, this calls for a mind of a mind with wisdom, which that's interesting because he thinks that someone with wisdom can understand what he's about to say. It's not encoded in a way that's indiscernible. Like he thinks people can understand it. So he says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. So earlier he depicted a woman writing this beast, right? So that's what that reference mm -hmm. is to. So the seven heads represent seven mountains. Why is that important? Well, it's important because we have a lot of data from the historical sources that show that Rome was known as the city of seven hills or the seven mountains. They even had a feast uh, um, called, called uh, the Feast of Seven Hills or you know, the Festival of Seven Hills. And uh, actually, the ancient Roman historian Suetonius mentions this in his biography of Domitian. He mentions this, uh, this feast. Um, so we, Rome was just known as the city on seven hills. The seven-hilled city sometimes is how it's called. And 
you know, we don't know that Greco-Roman context. We don't know that Roman context. And so we couldn't understand the content of this passage until we know the historical context of this passage, which is what I've just said, the city of seven hills. Um, what's even more fascinating about this is um, that this text also says that the seven heads not only represent seven mountains, but they also represent seven kings. Okay. Now, why is that helpful? Well, because you know, Rome, the city of Rome, the city of seven hills was also the capital, capital of the Roman Empire, which is where emperors or kings would live, right? This is where the capital was. So it makes sense why the seven hills also represent seven kings, because there's it's associated with that. Um, it, it, you know, this is no different than, you know, people today talking about the Big Apple. You know, we, we mean New York City, right? It's just a nickname. And, you know, 2000 years from now, when archaeologists are talking about the Big Apple, they, you know, most people won't know what that's a reference to unless they do historical research to find out, oh, New York City was called the Big Apple. Well, that's why we do historical research for Revelation is to show what he's talking about. Everybody, every one of his original readers would have recognized the reference of seven, the seven mountains represents Rome. The beast certainly seems to be the Roman empire in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. I, I was intrigued by the idea that different manuscripts change the number de depending on, because that, that would add some validity to that. It's referring to Rome. Like it could be coincidence, I guess that maybe, but the fact that it's changed sometimes depending on how Nero is spelled, um, definitely adds to that what is like as we're reading about this beast and the mark what what should we do with this passage like what do we take is it just kind of a uh nice apocalyptic comfort comforting letter to rehearse back on for the first century christians or is there something in it for us as well like is is there an, a reenactment of sorts of the Good. beast and the mark? Such a great question. Such a great question. I don't think we should read this as mere history or historical inquiry. And, you know, it's not meant for just the past. So we should apply this for the future and for our present time as well. Um, I'll get to your question whether it should be, if this is going to be reenacted in the future. Okay, I'll get to that in a moment. But let me just say this. I think Revelation is super practical and applicable to, to today because it gives us language and symbolism for how to understand the empires of our own day, mm. you know, and, and, and it gives us ways of thinking about the nature of power itself. Because if you read Revelation 17, 18 and around that area, Rome is actually criticized for its economic exploitation and its drunkenness on its own power lust and all those sorts of things. So these are very applicable for today, not just for today's governments of the world, but for today's, you know, greediness of the world. And, and, and if we're really good listeners of Revelation, we'll also not just look outside of us to point fingers at the beast that exists outside of us, but also the beast that likes to rear its ugly head within us, right? So there's, there's are we people of the lamb, the slain lamb, or are we people of the beast? I mean, this is highly practical you can preach a million sermons with this stuff um so absolutely it has everything to do with today has everything to do with the future in that sense 
Now, your question, though, is, will this be reenacted? Is there a future beast? Because if I've said that the beast is Rome, um, that the Roman Empire, does that mean there will be a future Roman Empire or, you know, of, of a sort? Hey, friends, thanks for listening to this episode with Dr. Halstead on eschatology. I just asked him a question about the beast, about whether it is going to be reenacted. Is there a antichrist coming that we are should look be on the outlook for? If you would like to hear his response to that, he has about a 13, 14 minute response. It's really, really good. He talks about how the beast uh, or the antichrist or man of lawlessness is the way that Paul refers to it is probably someone coming from within the church because he leads an apostasy. If you would like to hear more on that, uh, consider becoming a member of Unfeigned Christianity. We reserve the expanded versions of all our podcast episodes for members. It's just $10 a month. You get expanded versions of our podcasts as well as two deep dive essays a month. The next deep dive essay is going to be on 1 Corinthians 11. What's the big deal? about head covering. I invite you to join our membership. It's just $10 a month and there's a lot of lot of great stuff in the archives and a lot of stuff to come. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, I'd love to hear your thoughts and, and I'll turn it back over to our final conclusion with Dr. Halstead. Yeah, well, thank you, Matthew, for your time. I realize we're over uh, the, the hour that- Oh, that's <laughs> okay. That's just good. Yeah. <laughs> what, maybe kind of one last question just to like- sure. um, how do we to leave with our audience how because i'm sure there's going to be some people out there that are what if i'm what if i end up worshiping the beast without realizing it or what you know what Mm. is this what is this how do i know that i'm worshiping the lamb like what is the kind of comfort Mm. that you would leave with with someone like that yeah you know worship it involves you know, a decision of the will, it involves volition, you know, I don't think you can accidentally worship something. But but you can give yourself over to the ways of the world and to sin so much and so often that you might lose the conscious realization that what you've been doing has been acts of worship. So let me give a just a brief example, if I, if I make small choices, small choices every day, they become habits, habits become lifestyles, lifestyles become, you know, part of my character. You know, if I, if I make, for example, a commitment to cuss, say one cuss word every day for 365 days out of the year, then by the end of the, that year, I will probably be cussing without even realizing, right? Mm. And that's how habits work. And, and so, so we can make small choices that leave us in the end doing really bad things without us recognizing it. So, but the good thing is God gives us repentance. He allows for us to repent and turn. And he, his Holy Spirit is always, you know, knocking on the doors of our hearts, you know, and telling us, you know, to change our ways. And I think, I think what we need to do is one, don't fear about accidentally taking the mark of the beast. It's not really the way it works. Um, If you're a Christian and you love Jesus, you have the mark of the lamb on you. You you know, you have the seal of the spirit uh, upon you and you're, you're protected from eternal harm and you're identified as a son or daughter of God. And, and so I don't want Christians worrying about that. Uh, you know, I, I think what we can do is we should be vigilant that we aren't compromising the ways of the lamb with the ways of the beast. And we have to understand that the ways of the lamb 
are always marked by, there's that word mark, they're always marked by acts of love and kindness and humility and deference to one another. So as long as we are pursuing a life of loving others as we as we love ourselves and loving God before all things, then we we are manifesting the the mark of the lamb and everything that we do. We're leaving those marks for everybody to see to glorify God. And so I, I think if we think of the mark as that, it's going to give us a lot more peace, I think, in many ways, because I think a lot of Christians today fear of, you know, oh my goodness, I have on my credit card 666 on it. I've got the mark of the beast or what if I took the vaccine and, and it ends up being the mark. Of the, it's like, okay, that's not, you've totally missed it. If that's what your fear is, because again, the mark historically speaking was all about identity, identifying you as such, you know, unless you took the vaccine in a way that was like, I'm taking the vaccine and I'm by golly doing so for the name of the beast, you know, well then you have other problems, right? That has nothing to do with the vaccine or whatever. My wife told me the other day, uh, I guess it's been a couple months ago. She said, that I think it was on an old driver's license or something she had, or on the current one, she has three sixes in a row. <laughs> and of, of course you do, because your husband's writing a book on this. You have to have, you know, it doesn't, I, it means nothing to me. I yeah. mean, uh, yeah. it's just, the, again, those numbers aren't like magical incantations. Right? They're, they're, it, they're just, they're actually just numbers for a name. You know, people did that. In the ancient world, it was called gematria, where you take numbers and you could associate it with names. They did it all the time. And Nero actually had it done to him quite a bit, according to the ancient historian Suetonius, who was wrote who wrote a biography of Nero. And it talks about how people were playing with the number of his name. It's really yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So common thing, but to answer your question directly, um, if you if you if Jesus Christ is your Lord, you have the mark of the Lamb, and it's shown in your yeah. love for the saints and love for Jesus. Focus on that. Honestly, focus more. Do more research on Mark of the Lamb, Seal of the Lamb stuff. Dwell there. Yeah. Uh, the Mark of the Beast is just, I think we probably think about it too much. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, not not at least in, in proportion to how much we should think about the Mark of the Lamb, I should say. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time. Um, so people, if they want to follow, when, do you have a published date for the book? or? Um, I do. I don't. That that book won't be out until the end of the year, maybe early next year. Okay. But um, I'll I'll definitely post updates on you know social media. I'm on, I guess, I guess I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm not cool yeah. enough to do TikTok or anything. But uh, <laughs> those three, I have a website uh, people can go to and I post updates there. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll uh, be sure and drop a link to the website matthewhalstead.com. Okay. And- um, have you written other books? I, I guess I hadn't even asked. Yeah, uh, so this would be my second book. The Eschatology is my second book. My first book is on Romans. It's an academic oh, okay. book, yeah. um, but it won't it won't be out actually for a few more months. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Well, yeah, thanks for coming on and giving us this time. And I look forward to seeing what's Absolutely. I'm honored to be on, man.
essays a month, and expanded versions of all our podcast interviews. If you would like to become a member, visit www.ashawhitmer.com forward slash member. Unfaith Christianity Podcast is also a part of two networks, the Restorative Faith Collective, where we have conversations about race, perspectives, and relationships in Anabaptist context. To learn about more articles and podcasts, visit www.restorativefaithcollective.org. The second network is the Kingdom Outpost, where we talk about what it looks like to live as Jesus's nation in today's world. For more podcasts and articles, visit kingdomoutpost.org. Thanks for listening.